Hi everyone and welcome to this latest episode of our Brexit and Beyond podcast and I'm absolutely delighted to say that our guest today is none other than our very own Catherine Barnard, legal superstar, professor at the University of Cambridge. Catherine, how are you doing? Hi there. I thought you didn't like lawyers. Well, I'll make an exception for you. Every law has an exception, doesn't it? Now, we've got loads to go through with you and uh, the first thing, I mean, first things first, you have read the trade and cooperation agreement, haven't you, in its entirety. I'd be lying if I said I'd read every word, but I've probably read quite a lot more than you have. Oh, I say, nice little dig to start with. Catherine is the only person I know who, when she talks about the treaty, gives you page numbers as if she'd sort of memorised it. But just stepping back from the detail, if I said to you, what are the three things that strike you as most unusual, interesting or important about that document, what would you say? One, it's there. It's even been agreed. I mean, that in itself was a pretty remarkable thing and is actually a tribute to both sides that they did manage to get this thing agreed. And it is a big beast. Um, It's deeply complex. Um, It's a field day for lawyers, but it is there and we are already trading on its terms. Yes, there's grace periods and all sorts of things. But the fact is, it's already in application. Secondly, although we've heard loads and loads of stuff about goods, services is still pretty slim. And this is going to be a big problem going forward, not least because when people start traveling again, they're going to discover it's no longer as straightforward as it used to be. Third thing, and I think this is, again, a credit and an unexpected, is the level of cooperation that has been provided for in respect of what's called internal security so police and judicial cooperation in criminal matters obviously the UK was very worried or certainly UK police were very worried about losing access to all the databases and yes we've lost access to the CIS database but nevertheless there is a pretty high level of cooperation far higher than you find in any other free trade agreement. Just on that internal security stuff to what extent does that collaboration hinge on us getting this so-called adequacy decision from the European Union. If we don't get that, will that affect security cooperation? I think it's going to make life much, much more complicated, certainly. But the fact is, there is clearly a mutual interest, both on the EU and UK sides, that there should be cooperation. And, you know, we've got to remember that only a matter of months ago, before COVID hit, you know, terrorism was front and centre of all government's agendas. And the fact is, it hasn't gone away. I think when we talked last week, you came up with a, with a phrase that was sort of Canada in terms of trade, Switzerland in terms of process. Or I didn't put it as well as you put it. <laughs> Can you just expand on that? Yeah, so it's it's Canada. I mean, the TCA is, is Canada. Canada both plus and minus, a tiny little bit of plus. For example, you can, it's home title. You, lawyers can use their home title to provide services in other countries. You don't get that in Canada. But it's minus too, because there are some things that Canada has got that we haven't got, particularly over conformity assessment, um, mutual recognition. That sounds very dull. But what that means is that you can uh, manufacturers in Canada can certify that their goods comply with EU standards. And that, of course, is really important for selling their goods in the EU market. We haven't got that. So it's Canada plus with a little bit of plus and mainly a big quite a chunk of minuses. It's Switzerland in terms of process. What does that mean is that Switzerland has about 120 bilateral agreements with the EU. EU hates that as a model because it's clunky and the EU went out of its way to make sure we didn't have a Swiss style arrangement and so they insisted on tying us into this overarching governance and dispute 
settlement mechanism, which is what they're pushing that the Swiss should have. But the fact is, there is an anticipation that there will be further agreements and any further agreements will be sucked into this overarching structure. Now, I mean, it seems to me, and you can quite rightly say, what do you know, that there is an enormous amount of uncertainty over what this treaty actually means in terms of, you know, for instance, there's a lot of talk about level playing field. And, and you search in vain for someone who says, OK, we now have a treaty and it means A, B and C. That just seems to be a, a, a tremendous amount of uncertainty about in practice, what will this mean? Is that true? If it's true, is it normal? And how will that get clarified? So level playing field is really tricky. And it looked like we were going to have a test case pretty quickly because it looked like the UK was going to do some fairly dramatic surgery on the working time regulations and perhaps a bunch of other regulations. And then that would have really tested what the EU meant about the difference between the tests being applied to non-regression and the test being applied to rebalancing. But it looks like new Secretary of State's come in, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, and they said, actually, we're not going to have a review of employment law. And indeed, we're going to, um, it looks like we're going to retain the working time regulations as interpreted by the Court of Justice in the way they are. And we're going to have a few more rights as well, not significant rights, but at least they'll be there. So that doesn't, that immediate pressing question um, seems to have gone off the table. I think, however, the next place to look is what's going to happen about freeports. The freeports, depending on how they set up the freeport structure, may well be another area where the EU start to say, "Hang on a sec, are you going? Are you really undermining the material, um, the trade and investment between the?" EU and the UK through your use of free ports, and there might be a further test there. You're not going to give us the answer as to what a material impact on trade actually means then? Well, it's not defined. I mean, there's loads of stuff. Actually, economists have thought about it a lot. It comes up with anti-dumping already. So there are tools that can be relied on. And you can rest assured that the EU um, will be um, saying these are the tests that we're going to apply. And under the rebalancing mechanism, there's only a very short window for any tribunal to consider the matter. And if they can't work out the answer in 30 days, then the EU applies its own tests and starts doing retaliation. But there is there is there's guidance out there. It's just that it's not spelt out in the treaty. Now, of course, all treaties are framework. Just look at the um, the WTO. There are only really a, a relatively small handful of cases about 500 cases that have been through the system and they can't possibly test every point when you think the ecj hears about 2000 cases a year mm. um, it just gives you an idea that the ecj is dealing with ever more complex issues the wto the appellate body which of course isn't functioning at the moment but the appellate body and the panel mechanism are dealing with many many fewer so of course there's loads and loads of uncertainty in these international treaties and when it comes to governance specifically and this is i promise this is the last thing i'm going to ask you about the treaty but this is a treaty that sets up this huge, complicated infrastructure of committees and working groups, which I will let you describe to us. But also the other the specific question I have is, if I'm not mistaken, we're talking about institutions within which you have EU representatives and UK representatives, but also other people who are neither from the UK and the EU. And I'm kind of curious who these people are going to be and where we're going to find them, these people who ultimately will adjudicate, won't they, if the UK and the EU end up locked in conflict? Yeah, absolutely right. So this is on the arbitration tribunal. You're going to have folk who are neither um, British nor EU. I mean, presumably the obvious places to look would be the US and Australia and New Zealand, where they've got lots of experience of managing these uh, types of dispute uh, resolution mechanisms. But remember, usually 
although all free trade agreements have uh, dispute resolution mechanisms, they're rarely invoked. And so it's largely done at a political level, which takes us back to all of these lovely committees that you're talking about. The big beast is the Partnership Council, um, which uh, presumably will be Michael Gove and the vice president of the commission, as it is for the joint committee on the withdrawal agreement, but that's only due to meet once a year. Now, if that's right, then all the committees underneath will uh, have a much greater role. They're going to be technical. And because they're technical, they will be staffed by civil servants. Question for the UK, will they be just Whitehall civil servants or will they be Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish? Actually, you mentioned the withdrawal agreement. We should do one thing, I suppose, on uh, Northern Ireland. You were brought up in Northern Ireland, weren't you? So we have a particular interest in what goes on there. Now, given what's been happening and the early problems we've seen, are you confident that the protocol will provide a sort of working model for Northern Ireland, particularly when it comes to trade? Are you concerned? I'm concerned. I'm concerned because, of course, there's vested interests on all sides to make sure it doesn't work for entirely different reasons, you know, from the DUP sides to show that the the protocol doesn't work and therefore um, they should be much more securely, Northern Ireland should be much more securely part of the UK customs territory. Yes, formally it is, but of course we know what's going on down the Irish Sea at the moment. And of course, on the uh, other side, uh, they want to say we want a united Ireland. And so therefore, they want to be able to say that the protocol isn't working. So there's a lot of vested interest. And I do think uh, what we saw last week over the rather random use of Article 16 or threatened random use of Article 16 just gives you an idea how sensitive all these issues are. I mean, whether you look at Article 16 as a nuclear weapon or whether you look at it as a Ming vase, in either way, it should be handled with great deal of care rather than in that rather cavalier way that the Commission treated it last week. And if the Commission can use it, or at least threaten to use it with such ease, then you can see the DUP saying that um, the UK should be able to use it with a great deal of ease as well. So you're worried that basically what happened last week over vaccines might spill over and the DUP will say, well, look, if they can do it, why can't we? Exactly. Trigger it now because we haven't got sausages here or whatever. Exactly right. Exactly right. And it's not for that you know, the, the absence of sausages that Article 16 was introduced. What was it introduced for then? That's an interesting question because actually um, there's the equivalent of Article 16 in the TCA. There's the equivalent of Article 16 in the EEA agreement, the European Economic Area Agreement. And it's only ever been invoked once under the EEA, the European Economic Area Agreement, in respect of Liechtenstein. And Liechtenstein invoked it um, to try and con- uh, restrict free move to persons, Liechtenstein being tiny. There's a process before it can be invoked. It's only in extreme circumstances can it be invoked without going through the process. And what seemed so remarkable about the incident last week is that the Commission seemed completely unaware of the process that they had constructed to make sure that this Ming vase is handled with care. We're going to pause for a moment for this extremely exciting break. Hello there, I'm Katie Hayward, Senior Fellow for UK and a Changing Europe, specialising in Northern Ireland and Brexit, based at Queen's University in Belfast. Apologies for interrupting, but seeing as you're here, I thought you might be interested in signing up to our newsletter, which is now weekly. You can keep up to speed by going to our website, www ukandeu.ac.uk. See you there. Just to continue, Catherine, I mean, we, we, we sort of spar, we've sparred about this over the years, but I mean, to ask you the serious question about it, are you c- 
concerned about the place of law, if I can put it like that. What we've seen over the last few years are several sort of head-on challenges to law, whether it's newspaper headlines about judges, whether it's an internal market bill where defended by a British minister in parliament as being, you know, the right to break international law under certain specific uh, circumstances. The, are you concerned about how politics has treated law and what that might mean? I mean, inevitably, as a lawyer, I would say yes. And the, you've mentioned two obvious challenges. I think there's a third and fourth that need to be thought about. The review on the use of judicial review, how judicial review gets dealt with in this country. I understand the report has now gone to ministers. And then there's also a review about the Human Rights Act, which has also just launched its call for evidence. So law is certainly under challenge. The rule of law is under challenge. And of course, we understand why, because the law has been turned to by those parties who don't get what they want politically. And then that raises the question, where does law fit into a, in a democratic system when you've got a major, majoritarian approach, which says that leave one and leave one by a slim margin, but nevertheless leave one. And this has led to these quite dramatic changes, both in the UK and between the UK and its relationship with its largest trading partner. And yet there are a lot of people who were dissatisfied with that. So they've had to turn to law because the politics hasn't delivered. And then, of course, that raises a question, is law being seen to be used entirely by the losing party? And therefore, where does what does that mean for the leave vote? who voted very much in favour of leaving the European Union. And so it seems to discredit law in the lives of, eyes of the Leave voters. And I think we saw that in the 2019 election. The, certainly in those red wall seats, there was a strong sense of get Brexit done and Parliament, lawyers, judges stop getting in the way of the will of the people. And yet law has traditionally been there as a recourse for the underdog. And so how do you strike this balance? So this is why law itself is having to look at itself to try and work out what an, where does it fit in this system? And I think it's quite striking in the Miller 2 case, Baroness Hale was at pains to point out that even though it's a highly political judgment, in a sense, it was a highly political, sensitive political issue. What they were actually addressing was a legal question. What are the outer limits of the power of the executive? I mean, I two questions stem from that. One about the European Union itself. I mean, one of the things the UK loses from leaving the European Union is that sort of body of quasi-constitutional law, laws that are beyond the reach of Parliament. Parliament can't overturn them. But I suppose one question would be, why should certain things be beyond the reach of Parliament? Isn't that fundamentally undemocratic? Yes, but that is very much a British constitutional approach that we have not been accustomed prior to membership of the EU of having some sort of hierarchically superior rule because we don't have a written constitution. Now, what you do see emerging little by little is that the common law is serving a sort of constitutional function. The best example of that um, is the Unison decision, which is a case about um, tribunal fees. And the argument was that when tribunal fees were introduced, if you want to go before an employment tribunal, the number of cases fell off a cliff. I mean, they fell by 79%. Mm. And so there was a challenge to that, that it must be said, not primary law, but secondary law, as being contrary to the common law principle of access to justice. And that challenge was successful. So we are seeing very slowly the common law taking on that quasi-constitutional function. But of course, there would be nothing to stop Parliament legislating and saying, by an act of Parliament, saying we're reversing the decision in unison. What 
leaving the EU means is that you have lost that permanent backstop, that permanent ground of challenging UK Acts of Parliament, statutory instruments against some sort of higher constitutional norm, namely EU law. Now, if you had a constitutional system, you would say, well, that's what the Constitution does. Uh, the US Constitution is used as ground for challenging any federal or state law, but we are just not accustomed to having that in the UK. Isn't there a danger, though, that enshrining rights or enshrining laws beyond the reach of Parliament can simply be used as a way for the establishment to set up a system that suits its own interests? Absolutely. And so, that, of course, that's one of the arguments that the Leave campaign essentially were running about the EU. It wasn't quite couched in those terms, but Parliament cannot reverse decisions taken by the Court of Justice. Parliament cannot Uh, reverse what the EU treaty said and that was ultimately unacceptable which is why there was a vote to leave. On the other hand having some fundamental values which evolve over time and certainly the evidence shows that the Supreme Court in the United States their decisions broadly reflect the value of the people at the time of course there's some notable exceptions it does mean that there is protection for the underdog to protect the minority against the majority. Appointments to the Supreme Court are politicised in a way that judicial appointments here aren't. Absolutely. But on the other hand, you would say what is healthy about our system is that the judicial appointments are based on merit. You have very high quality people and you genuinely don't know which way most of them vote. You have no indication And I think, you know, the best judges are the ones who let the law speak for itself rather than letting their own personality shine through in the judgments. Okay, now I can't let you go without sort of a bit of reflection about the UK and a changing Europe. You've been with us as part of our team in various different guises all the way back to 2015. And I mean, it's been it's been interesting, to say the least. What has the experience taught you? I really I've enjoyed it. I mean, of course, there's been ups and downs. What I have learned is one about the role of social science, that actually uh, people from different disciplines, even political scientists and lawyers can occasionally work (laughs) together, that there's actually quite a lot to learn from each other. But I think one of the best things about UK and a changing Europe is it's there to show that you can explain complicated things in an accessible way. And frankly, as an academic, it forces you to really clarify your thoughts, to be able to express your thoughts in a thousand words or in 30 second piece for a news uh, story. But the most important thing is that academics have got to get out there and talk and explain what they're doing and explain why it matters. And I think UK and a changing Europe has been at the vanguard of saying, look, this is a good thing to do. It's an essential part of our work and it should be valued. Do you think it is valued in the profession? It's changing. Yeah, it's changing. Some people are very committed to it. And indeed, actually, I think it's quite striking that universities now are giving prizes for impact. I mean, your bookshelves must be groaning under the weight of prizes for <laughs> impact but groaning under the weight of unread books well that's also true but at least uh, at least the prizes can prop up the shelves <laughs> to keep the uh, un- unread books on the shelf so i think universities are coming around to that view and of course as part of the ref the research excellence framework there's much talk about impact and so i think impact is beginning to be valued of course there's much debate about what earth impact actually means but nevertheless it's certainly uh, a worthwhile exercise and actually I think it's got a value in its own right because talking to each other is nice but ultimately if you want to change the world in even in a little bit of a way talking to a fellow academic isn't going to deliver that all right then so just to make questions even meaner if i were to say name a couple of highlights from the last five or six years you and i've have lived the high life and the low life i think do you remember we made that trip to spalding but we did um, a pre-brexit event in the town hall there 
And if you remember, the front row was entirely um, occupied by people wearing UKIP T-shirts. And I think um, they they came to Barrack and I think they, they thought, you know, we would be there preaching that the EU was good. And in fact, I think they were somewhat surprised that we were offering what I hope was a much more balanced view. It was quite striking at the end. One of them stood up, do you remember? And he said, um, and don't you know God is English? Um, yes, which is no, um, Which <laughs> uh, certainly opened opened our eyes. Relatedly, we've done filming in other places in East Anglia, like um, Wisbeach, where you get to see a very different view of the world to the view that I get in Cambridge and you get in Oxford and London. And I think it's very instructive to go and talk to people who see things so differently to make you understand. I think the other, a uh, moment which is was quite striking we went to a prison we went to an open prison we talked there and indeed it was interesting the extent to which the folk in the prison had really really engaged with some of the issues and I think some of the town hall events have been really good things I mean there was one where we were in Newcastle um, and I think it was you who raised the question about GDP and um, you were roundly condemned for talking about the GDP of, um, of Great Britain when they just thought it was all about London. You've forgotten that you've forgotten our afternoon in Parliament on uh, in, in April uh, 2019 or whenever it was talking about customs unions. We certainly were explaining what a customs union was. It was a right riveter, as you can imagine. But I do I do think, actually, it should be compulsory in all schools that they get some education on trade, because not knowing the difference between free trade agreement, customs union, single market is actually quite serious now because we are in a free trade agreement. We're not in a single market. And the consequences are that teething troubles or not, there will be more barriers to trade as goods move from the UK to EU and EU to the UK. Which will have an impact on all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a a consequence of our choice of being in the free trade agreement. Going back to your earlier question, much more about parliamentary control, sure. But equally, there are costs that go with it. And I think one of the, to end perhaps on a less positive note, I think what we've also seen and we've struggled with too, is the fact is that there are inevitably going to be trade-offs. And I think there's been a lack of honesty in the political debate about being clear about what those trade-offs entail. It was never about having a cake and eating it. There's always trade-offs in life. And we were often confronted with that. And politicians would push back and say, no, it's going to be frictionless trade. Indeed, as the Prime Minister said on Christmas Eve, there will be no non-tariff barriers. And yet those who are trying to get their goods across um, from Dover know that there is a vast amount of paperwork. There's going to be a lot of learning by doing over the next few months and years, I suspect. Catherine, it's been an absolute treat working with you. And I just want to say thank you so much for finding the time to do this. It's been fascinating. It's been wonderful. Thanks a million. (laughs) 